If ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad free. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's time for the podcast. I have managed to, unfortunately, leave Paris and back home in Ireland. It has its charms, but they're hard to find sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) In comparison to swanning around. I heard you were extradited, actually. But anyway. What what did you hear? (laughs) So that was a great trip. It was a, it was a really good trip. And I'll tell you, it, it focused my mind on many things. But one of the things is what we're going to talk about today, which is alternative sources of energy. And when you're in France, you're not aware of it, but you're made aware of it if you talk to French people mm. about how much they depend on nuclear. Yes. But not so much they depend on nuclear. They say that nuclear is actually our way out. And if you look at in the 70s, remember the few shows we did a while back about how every country reacted differently to the oil crisis in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the vast majority of the world said, okay, Middle East, place that we can't depend on for our supplies. So rather than change the nature of the fuel that we use to create electricity, we'll get that existing fuel somewhere else. And that started the whole dependency on Russia thing, which culminated in what we know that Europe is hyper-dependent on Russian oil and gas. Yeah. Except for the French. You have to say the French exceptionalism. Yeah. The French said, well, hold on a second. And this comes from a sort of a weirdness in post-war France has always been like they didn't join NATO for a long, long time. They refused to allow the Brits into the EU for a long, long time. Did they? I actually didn't realise Oh, that. yeah. De Gaulle. De Gaulle vetoed Brits. He just thought they were a nuisance and he was right. <laughs> That's exactly what you thought. Yeah. Which if, you, if you're a Brit, you think, well, hold on a second. We did bail you out in the Second World War. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he, thought they were new, he thought they were a nuisance. He, yeah. he actually predicted that they would be a difficult non-conformist member of the EU. There's and a man with a vision. On. He was spot on. He was spot on. <laughs> but so France has always taken this sort of quasi-independent geopolitical, geostrategic worldview, right? Mm. Which makes it quite different. And one of those decisions they took was, hold on a second, if we are going to be dependent on outsiders for the fuel that powers our electricity, maybe we should make it ourselves. But yeah. then at the time, they had no real hydro. 
They have hydro in the Alps, but not enough. Yeah. And they have no petrol and no oil, no gas. But they said, but we have technology and we have engineers. Why don't we beef up our nuclear exposure? Yeah. And the other thing about it, if you've ever been in France, and I, and I, I was over there working for a while, is that they do have a huge pride in their engineering. Right. Yeah. So, for example, I remember Sarkozy. Do you remember the the little president Sarkozy about two presidents ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said remember something well. interesting. He said, "If France doesn't produce planes, trains, and cars, it's not France." So he's basically saying that we need to produce technologically advanced, sophisticated things. Yeah. And it all comes from the fact that they have a real grow, as we'd say in Irish, for engineering. And French engineers are really quite, quite brilliant. And the French state, since Napoleon, sees itself as an impressive thing, right? It's an impressive yeah. thing, this French state. So they build bridges, they build railways, they build companies. They've a, they've a really healthy startup and now sector they've a, now. Now they're very, and that's from Macron. Macron decided he was of 25 unicorns by 2025. Yeah. And... They've also traditionally had like you know, the TGV, the Airbus, all these things, right? And so one of the things is that we're going to build our own nuclear. And now they get over 75% of all their electricity from nuclear. So they're looking at an alternative. And this all comes back to our friend Napoleon. Remember? Yeah. Yeah, Napoleon yeah. was really big into the state. He was saying, we need a strong state in order to build a strong republic. And if we build a strong republic, then, of course, what Napoleon did is he wanted to export that idea, which he did yeah. to the Grand Army with various levels of success. But to come back to the point, the French have looked for, sought, and executed an alternative energy strategy. And that alternative energy is nuclear. And yeah. it's safe. Yes. It's safe. Well, relatively, as safe as it can be, I suppose, as a, as a technology. Yeah, but in comparison to the amount of people who have died from, you know, pollution. global warming, pollution, yes, yeah, yeah. no, 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 it's a fair point, it's a fair point. And it seems to be the future and lots and lots of people, and of course, I've made my bet, as you know, uh, a bit premature, <laughs> when I, the, yeah. the, the Mac Williams Pension Fund yeah. went up the yin-yang with uranium stocks. <laughs> you, you ain't retiring, man, you ain't two, retiring. Two, two, 2007, I said... Not for this, not for me, that Irish housing. I'll be ahead of the game. I'll call the Irish housing right. And what I'll do is I'll put my money into uranium because the future is nuclear. This was 15 years ago. Yeah. And then there was a tidal wave. But speaking of renewables in general or low carbon energy sources, it was interesting to, I was reading Eamon Ryan earlier on this week and he was saying absolutely no to nuclear, but he wants to put all the efforts into offshore wind, which I'm all for as well. But I think it's a mistake. I really do think it's a mistake to rule out. Of course it is. You know, just with a sweeping statement. The Greens have a deep, deep dilemma when it comes to nuclear, because all Green parties were founded on the anti-nuclear movement of the 1970s. Do you remember that yeah. atomic craft, what was it, atomic craft nine Danke, on the back of a Citroën de Chevaux, usually in suburban Ireland, yeah, there'd yeah, be this yeah, yeah. nuclear power, no thanks. And that was the Green, actual fact, it was Petra Kelly, who was the leader of the German Greens, the first one, and she had an Irish dad and a German 
Ah, right. Petra Kelly. But so I think the Greens come from that legacy that they find it difficult to get their head around nuclear. But let's talk about nuclear in the future. The key thing is that economics is all about energy. And if you can find an alternative source of energy that is cheap and renewable, then that should be transformative for the society. Yeah. So let's talk today about wind farm. Who are we going to talk to? Vanessa O'Connell, who's from Inish Offshore Wind. Okay, And they're making great inroads into wind energy for Ireland. And they're great plants. She's brilliant. But I think it's really important, as you say, to look at all the options that are on the table, from wind, solar, nuclear. Even nuclear. Even nuclear. But I think over the next few weeks, I think we should talk to various different people and look at the various different energy options that we have. You're absolutely right. I remember actually years ago, John, writing The Pope's Children and I came up with a character called Fair Trade Frank. <laughs> Fair Trade Frank was an Irish serial protester who had gone to every single protest since Carnesore Point. Yeah. That was actually the, that was the ground zero of Fair Trade Frank. You know this type of person, right? Yeah. They're, yeah, like, yeah. they're again everything, right? Okay. And anything, you know, is, is going to intimidate Fair Trade Frank. But it was current stuff because when we were kids, anti-nuclear movements started in Carnesore Point. And it's interesting to see Eamon Ryan is still part of that fair trade, Frank, yeah. sort of politics. Whereas I, I think you're right, we're just going to have to look at everything. But do you know what, Mac? It, you know, and you've always said this about the left. The left always look for traitors while the right look for converts. Yes, they do. It's very, very similar in the green movement as well. Is it? Yes, because they, the the problem, like I can go on with this and maybe we'll come back to this at another day. But my issue with the green movement, it was one of those things where anything, any hue of green, people jumped on it. When in actual fact they needed to separate out all those individual issues, whether it is kind of save the polar bear, save the whale type stuff, or bypasses, or, you know, we had Swampy and all those guys digging tunnels for bypasses to save snails and stuff, or to the real crux of it, climate change and energy production. And that's, you know... It, it, they were all lumped in together and they should have been separated out and dealt with separately. And it's by lumping them all in together that they tend to have these disagreements. Exactly. This, exactly. I mean, we, should, we, should, we should end this section with a quote from the great Brendan Behan. Oh, go on. Because Brendan Behan described every great Irish movement, which he said, the first thing on the agenda is the split. <laughs> <laughs> and the Greens are the same. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, Mac, let's go find out because I want to, I'm really keen to find out more about wind energy. And as you say, that can we be the Saudi Arabia of of wind in the North Atlantic? Saudi Arabia of renewables. That's just, it's it's a marketing man's dream. Well, let's go find out from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Wind as opposed to hot air, John. (laughs) Luckily for John and I, we have somebody who actually understands wind energy the potential of wind energy, the problems and the paths towards a solution. And she's Vanessa O'Connell, the head of Irish Offshore Wind. Vanessa, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for the invite, David. Delighted to be here. 
Not at all. No, just say a little, little bit about it. Tell me about your company before we talk about the issues. Tell me about the company, tell me about yourself, how you got into all this sort of stuff and what you see as the future. Yeah, so I'm head of Inish Offshore Wind. We're a company, an Irish renewable energy company. We were set up over two years ago by Temporis with the support of, of Warwick Energy, who both have a real strong record in renewables and, and offshore wind. We're state-backed. We've got the backing of the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund, and we've got a huge ambition for offshore wind in, in Ireland. And, and Temporis, as, as a company, has sustainability as, as part of its DNA. So a little bit about myself. I've spent over 10 years working in the offshore wind industry. So I was over in the UK. I really had a fantastic career sort of being a somewhat the start of, of offshore wind in the UK and, and seeing it sort of grow to, they were the global leader until last year. I think China passed them out. But yeah, it's it's been a phenomenal journey being part of, it's, it's a Danish energy company, Orsted, that I was working for. They're the global leader, one of the global leaders in, in development, construction and operation of offshore wind. And I was part of heading up the asset management of Hornsey One, which is currently the largest operating wind farm in the world. So tell me, Vanessa, right, for my simple thing, so you know all this sort of stuff, and we're going to talk about why the Danes seem to be ahead and, and, and whatever. But, you know, the very, very basic idea is we need to transition. The world needs to transition to renewable energy. And I've often said on the podcast, based on being blown off various different headlands in <laughs> the west of Ireland, that Ireland has the raw material. It's extraordinary. I mean, there's probably no fewer places better suited to trying to garner or capture wind energy than this. It's, it, we're basically, it's the look of geography. We're in a part of the world which is full of wind. I'm Am I right in that to say at the basic starting foundational level, we have the stuff to work here? You're completely right, David. Like if you look at Ireland, we have an opportunity to become a major global player in offshore wind. We've gotten enough seabed to generate five times the power that we need. So the potential to both power Ireland and you know reach our, our climate climate change goals, but also to power, power Europe. You know, we really could be an energy superpower. And I suppose for me, you know, just to step back in terms of where we are, we're right in the middle of an energy crisis. We've had the climate change crisis for decades. We've been trying to push to sort of drive forward renewables. You know, we've had the continuous warning from the IPCC latest April this year that we need to move in terms of rollout of renewable energy to you know, meet the goal of you know staying at a rise of 1.5 degrees and trying to stay below two degrees. More recently, and I think for me, a favorite sort of motto that I have over my life is necessity is the mother of invention. So we have the energy security crisis that is hitting us right now with the horrendous sort of invasion of Russia, of Ukraine. And that's really telling us that, you know, energy security is a real issue and we need to move to renewable energy. If we look at Ireland, we're importing over 70% of our energy in the form of fossil fuels. The average in Europe is... 55%. And what that means is we're spending, you know, near to 5 billion and, and plus in importing fossil fuels each year. When if we come back to the opportunity of re renewable energy, that's money that could that could stay in Ireland supporting Irish jobs and, and communities. And then the third element is, yeah, it's it's the cost, you know. So it's the energy trilemma. So it's looking at the climate change, the affordability 
and making it secure. We need to fix all these problems and offshore wind and, and renewable energy gives us the opportunity to do that. Vanessa, how much of, of the energy we're producing at the moment is down to wind? I know it varies from day to day, but on average? Yeah, good, good question. And it does vary day to day. So on average, it's about 40%. And we can all find out exactly what's happening on the grid if, if you look at the air grid dashboard. So some days, like a week ago, it was very windy in Ireland. We got up to over 70%. And other days, wow. you know, it, it, can be, it can be 20%. So it really shows you, you know, when the wind is blowing, we are generating energy for ourselves and it's energy secure. And those, those days that there are, say, 60, 70% blowing, do we use all that energy or do we use some of that wind energy to convert into, say, hydrogen making? We're, we're, we're using most of it. I'd say at this point in terms of hydrogen, so hydrogen is certainly the, the future, but we still have a lot of way, long way to go to, to implement it and, and sort of get it sort of part of the energy system. And all around the world, you're seeing fantastic investments in terms of, of hydrogen. Because I think ultimately, when we're looking at the overall transition, it's about flexibility. So it's being able to generate the energy from renewables and then getting it to where it needs to be. And that is either, you know, time of day, we may need batteries to store it, or if it comes to hydrogen, we may want to sort of transition it into a transportation fuel for our our ships or planes. Can you explain to me, hold on, for the non-technical punter here. So the wind blows, that drives the turbines. The turbines then drive the power. What's the role of hydrogen? I, I can't get this at all. The role of, of hydrogen is that you're transferring the energy that you generate from the turbines into another form of energy. So generally, as we look at it, we generate the energy and we transfer that energy in an electron into our electricity grid. When it comes to hydrogen, you're transferring that energy into a molecule. So you then can use it for a different, uh, a different purpose. So the likes of sort of running a car or running a big vessel. So it's it's transferring the energy from one form to another to enable it to have a, a different use. Can you just give me a sense now? Because what really fascinates me is this idea that Ireland and Britain and Norway and Denmark, all of us in this part of the world, right, the Atlantic, right, have this extraordinary, maybe once in a once in a century opportunity to change our economies from one form of energy, which is corrosive, to another form of energy, which is renewable. Is there a sense that our state gets this, this massive, massive opportunity? I would say yes. I think in terms of the response to the climate emergency and the energy security challenges that we're facing right now, I think Ireland. Has, is, in, is in a good, good starting position, I would say. We have committed to a legally binding target to achieve a 51% reduction in Ireland's overall greenhouse gas emissions up to 2030. And we're also committing to achieving net zero emissions low, no later than 2050. I think what's key about that is legally binding. No change in government is going to be able to turn back that, that commitment that we've made. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's sort of consensus across governments about the importance of that goal. Underneath that goal, then there's a number of initiatives to help us in the implementation. We've committed to the 80% of electricity to come from renewables by 2030. So we talked earlier about the 40% currently. So we're to enable that, we're really going to have to roll out an, a lot of renewable energy. So we're going to have to double the installed capacity of onshore wind from just over four gigawatts to eight gigawatts. We're talking about solar. 
I know Ireland's not that sunny, but it still is a place that we can actually harvest that that energy. So we're looking at a, a goal of, of two and a half gigawatts. And then we've got the the area that I'm focused in is is five gigawatts of, of offshore wind. But it's not just that. So at the moment, we're focusing on these targets of 2030. But the government have also been recognizing the potential of offshore wind in the deeper waters in the Atlantic and in the Celtic Sea. So the potential for up to and, and potentially over 30 gigawatts of, of offshore wind. So I think the policy is there within the Climate Action Plan. The enablers... In terms of offshore wind, we had the Marine Planning Bill that was published at the end of 2021. So for Ireland, that's a really important milestone. It's the first time we have a a marine framework to enable us to develop our marine space. So that includes offshore wind. And we'll also be setting up a new regulatory authority, MARA, the Maritime Area Regulatory Authority next next year, which will will help us to build out our offshore winds. Uh, capacity. And then I think more recently then it was the National Energy Security Framework. So that was just published in April this year. And that was Ireland's response to our security needs in the context of, of the war in Ukraine. And I think it's it's focused on a, on a lot of things in terms of, you know, households, businesses, fuel poverty, energy security. But then a big part of it is is the rollout of, of renewable energy. And it was really great to hear actually Eamon Ryan also sort of announcing uh, last week, the urgency that we needed to apply to this, similar to that we've applied, applied to COVID. So I think for me, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. We saw when COVID came along that we all reacted and we got the vaccines, the public and the private sector working together to sort of solve the problem. When it comes to renewable energy, that's what we need to be doing. You know, the crisis is right in front of us. So with that, you know, the, the government have announced an, a number of sort of task force within government to accelerate the rollout of renewables. Vanessa, can you just give me a, a rule of thumb what one megawatt or one gigawatt actually means? Yeah, one, one gigawatt in terms of the, the potential of one gigawatt, it gives you enough energy to power around a million homes. For how long? Well, a million homes for a year. Hey, that's good, John, because I didn't need to know either. It was a bit like my hydrogen questions, like I hear. Yeah, I'm glad you asked me. Yeah, because if you think about Ireland in terms of our five gigawatt targets, that's five million homes. So we're already at a point where, you know, you're looking at, at exports. But the challenge, again, with renewables is you have to have more installed. So we've got, you know, the four gigawatts installed at the moment, but we're, you know, it's not powering the whole country because it's not blowing all the time. And, and just tell me, you know, like, for example, if we were to look at the development of the oil industry, let's say in Saudi Arabia or in Iran or in Norway later on, what tends to happen is the geologists found the oil under the ground. Foreign capital, because of the big oil majors where foreign came in and initially put in place the infrastructure. And then over time, that became nationalized. In the Norwegian case, they just set up their own industry. In the Arab cases, they actually nationalized the industries because all the goodies were being taken by elsewhere. What, what you've just outlined is that on paper, everything is ready in Ireland. But as you and I know, Vanessa, on paper, lots of shit is ready in Ireland. On paper, right? In practice, in practice, how do you see this? Who's going to come in? Who's going to build? Do we have the scientists? Do we have the engineers? Do we have the, the mechanics? The, I mean, this is, this is a technically momentous effort. Are we serious about this? Yeah. So I think the enablers are there, but the implementation, you're, you're so right. We have 
a big challenge ahead of us. And it's not just Ireland. I think, you know, we'll focus in on Ireland, but just to step back in terms of Europe, if we're going to reach the, keep on track to this 1.5 degrees and, and reach our 2030 goals, we need to scale up wind energy installations by four in the next decade. Wow. So the capacity that we need to install is, is just, you know, at the moment in, in the Europe, they're installing, it was 11 gigawatts last year. Next five years will be 18 gigawatts, but it needs to be 32 gigawatts per year to meet our targets. So in Europe, we're facing the challenges and similarly, we're facing challenges in Ireland. And I think for me, what's, what's really important is, is working together. And it's, it's not about the government sort of setting these plans and letting the developers come in and sort of implement it. It's, it's sort of a constant sort of collaboration to enable the rollout that, that's needed. If we look to the, the, the UK, we had what's called a, a sector deal. So the UK have had off, offshore wind for the last 20 years, and it's really ramped up in the last 10 years. And in 2019, they came together, the industry and the government, working with, with communities and various other stakeholders to put in place what was called the industrialization strategy for offshore winds. And that's effectively a handshake between the government and the industry around delivery. And who's responsible for which saying, look, we can't do this on our own. We need to work together. And it's that collaboration piece that I'm really passionate about. I want to see an industrialization strategy for offshore wind for Ireland. I want us to, to figure out what is the vision for Ireland for offshore wind and who needs to be part of that conversation. It's the government, it's the industry, and it's certainly the communities because Recently, there was the Europe trying to get off Russian gas and this commitment to, to get off Russian gas by 2030. And we saw on the 18th of May the plan to do that. It was called Repower EU. And a big part of that was rolling out renewables. And what it's saying is the big challenge that we have in Europe right now is permitting and planning. We can't get these projects built. They're stuck too long in planning. And what do we need to do about that? So I think there's there's a guidance from Europe to say you need to have a one-stop shop for renewables and you need to get these projects permitted within a year. But actually doing that, again, going back to your question, David, it's great to have big policy and sort of ambitions, but how do you implement that? And I think key for that, and it's something that's really important for us in, in Inish and Tempores, is working with communities and getting that consensus and social license for the development of, of these projects. Because without that, I think we're, we're facing a really big problem. And I think for, for Inish Offshore Wind as a developer, that's something that we can't ignore. If I think about the projects that we're developing right now, we're, we're talking about sort of, you know, 10-year pipeline. Uh, we're hoping to get gigawatts connected by 2030. But considering that timeline, we need to be working together with communities and our stakeholders all along the way to, to ensure that deliverability. When you talk about communities, I mean, again, this is the thing, you know, Ireland has an extraordinary ability to protest against an extraordinary amount of things. It's one of the big dilemmas in economics, this idea of the uh, what is good for the individual is not always good for the community. So we know that the, the prize is the potential to power Ireland with its own energy. And energy is the foundational basis of everything. So what we have is a transformational opportunity to use natural resources to power ourselves. However, certain communities are going to be galvanized by protesters against inconvenience and unsightly or whatever the issue is. And at the fundamental basis, it's exactly the same as the housing market. What we have is the need to house people 
consistent with the rights of individuals or some rights of individuals to protect their environment or their own built environment, their seen environment. Will it be necessary for this industry and this opportunity to actually say to many communities, look, you have to be on side with a national project here. And we're going to make that as easy as possible. But ultimately, you cannot, you cannot impede what is a national imperative. Well, I think that is, you know, that that's part of it, David. And I think we need to look at sort of, you know, the responsibility of, again, of us as working together in terms of communication. So communication in terms of the imperative, you know, the value of renewable energy to our society needs to be communicated. I think there has been a lot of focus in the industry about getting costs down, getting costs down. And I think sometimes the cost of that is, is people not understanding the real importance of value of, of this industry for Ireland and, and, you know, for, for the world. So I think for me, it's around communication of, you know, why it's required, but then also communication around the benefits that this can bring. So going back to this industrialization strategy, it's around nurturing homegrown talent, expertise, generating sustainable jobs. I think there's a forecast that if, you know, this industry goes the way we expect it to do, there's a potential for 40,000 jobs by the end of the decade. And then it's also about creating, you know, the, the supply chain. So with the supply chain, then comes comes the job. So I think for me, it's about, you know, engaging, communicating around the benefits of, of this industry for the long term. It's it's actually essential. It's a, it's an emergency that we're in. And and secondly, then it's about the benefits, you know, to the individual. Because the story I like to tell is, you know, working in Orsted, uh, there was uh, a number of developments off the Grimsby coast. So one of the projects I was working was 150 kilometers off the shore there. But the operation and maintenance bases are within Grimsby town. So now that was a, a declining fishing town, you know, was was really not going in the right direction in terms of development. And then offshore wind came along and it just changed the fortune of the towns. And it's, it's a lovely story to hear of where there was a, a fisherman and now his daughter is, is working in, in the renewable energy industry, which is a, an industry that will, you know, provide jobs for decades to come. It's not going anywhere. Well, this, this is what I'm actually thinking, because it, it means that the, the western seaboard, the western southern seaboard in Ireland, which has been blighted by emigration, being underemployment, all the young people leaving, all the stories we know as Irish people, this is a story going for hundreds of years, has got now, because of the blessing of our awful weather, has got now the potential to actually reindustrialize itself, to refinance itself, to regrow itself, to repopulate itself. I mean, this is, this is what I'm saying when the opportunity is completely transformative and it's out there yeah. and it's not going away and it needs to be done. So my sense is that this excitement that I have for this project is a transfer, a transformative excitement that let's get real here. I've said it before. I mean, this country could be the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. And it's a bit like the Saudis saying, ah, you see that oil under the ground stuff? Let's not take it out. Let's not take it out because somebody's back garden will be upset. Their view will be upset, right? Whereas what we're saying is you, you take Grimsby. Grimsby was a very Brexity town, right? And it was very Brexity because for so long, the fishing industry was being denuded, underinvested, etc. right? And so the political ramifications of not doing this are also consequential. I mean, mm -hmm. is it just me or does, do other people see the exciting opportunity here? Because it's, it's, it, it could transform the country, not for our generation, not for the next generation, but for 10 generations hence. 
Well, I'm with you, David. You know, I'm super excited. That That's why I came back to Ireland. You know, I was working in the UK for 10 years. Obviously, I'm Irish, so everyone wants to come back to Ireland eventually. But it was this opportunity, you know, to be part of the development of, of an offshore wind industry here. We've we've got one operating offshore wind farm off the coast of Arklow. There's seven turbines, 25 megawatts of generation. But we haven't fully harnesses the opportunity that that we have. And I think now is the time. And, and as I like the analogy to, to Saudi Arabia, but I'd probably like to say, yeah, like Ireland could be a superpower of energy, but unlike the CO2 emissions and unlike oil, you know, the wind will will never run out. And we could be exactly, the plug. Exactly. Yeah, we could be the plug that connects Europe with the unlimited energy supply. And I think now now is the time. You know, we there are a lot of other markets that have, you know, taken this decision already and, and making the moves. I think Ireland is, is on the way and we have the targets, but now it's about really implementation and people coming together. Just because, I mean, what amazes me from an economic perspective, right? Importing energy has been one of the most serious flows of money out of our economy for the last hundred years. Ireland missed out in the Industrial Revolution because we didn't have the resource in the 19th, 18th and 19th century. 20th century, we harness ourselves to importation of somebody else's gas and oil, okay? All of this denudes us of money and of expertise and technological know-how, okay? And makes us dependent on somebody else. Now, we are on the cusp of transforming ourselves. Imagine our balance of payment surplus if we were an energy exporter. It would be phenomenal. Imagine the wealth of this country if we were an exporter of energy because you're exporting to other people, things they need, not today, not tomorrow, but every single day into perpetuity. You could create a wealth fund like the Norwegians have. The Norwegians are now back for 350 years. They don't ever have to work again. I don't see that Irish people can, we, why don't we get this, that if we end up being an energy exporter of the magnitude of what is possible, the prospect of future generations of Irish people living in an extraordinarily prosperous and equal society are phenomenal. This is what every economist, every developmental economist in the world hopes for, which is that moment where you actually become self-sufficient in energy. That's that's the holy grail. And yeah. we have it now. And what you're saying is, Vanessa, we're not really awake to it just yet. Not just yet, but, but we're getting there. And I think, you know, the time is now. And if you look back to COP26 in, in Glasgow, the big difference to six years ago, because it was delayed for a year because of COVID, was the focus on the public and the private sector working together. So public-private partnership. I think this is something that I'm really calling for. We've, we've got the ambition, but we need to deliver. And in terms of delivering, we need to all be working together. And it's not going to be the government sort of making policy and, and leaving it, as I said. It, it needs to be that partnership approach which I think for ourselves in Temporis and Inish, we're, we're already an example of that with our, our state backing. So I think we're beginning to get it, but now is the time to, to drive on and deliver. That, that's great stuff, Vanessa. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Bye for now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. See, Mac, wind power is the way forward. Will we be the Saudi or not? Of the- <laughs> well, you know, I mean, John, the most. Let's get back to economics here, right? The foundational base of all economics is energy, okay? Yeah. If you figure out a way of powering yourself and your nation and your people, you have the holy grail because, number one, you can export energy, and number two, energy is the one thing that we know that the world will always pay for. So you can imagine our current account deficit, our current account position would be in surplus Indefinitely. Now, what does that actually mean? It means that loads and loads and loads, that's the technical term, yes. of money <laughs> is coming in every single day to Ireland. And what's going out is energy. So that money gives you the budgetary capacity to fix whatever the fuck you like. Yes. Okay? Like, I, I just want, I, I'm sorry for, you know, swearing, but like, get our heads around this. You can decide to spend it immediately on social inequality, on social housing, on education, on health, all that good stuff. Or you can decide to save it and put it into a health and wealth fund, as the Norwegians do, and save it for future generations, okay? You can fix everything with the money that comes from having energy and an energy surplus. And you're doing it renewable, so you're actually helping the planet. But you're also changing, and this is the key thing, it's the industrial base of the country changes. So what you do is you create mechanical, technical, engineering, scientific opportunities for Irish people into, per- into perpetuity. That is the key, right? With the and so rather than producing graduates in engineering for export, you produce graduates in engineering for your own stuff. Mm. And then what you do is when you get good at this stuff, you export the technology because you are the guys who do it. Yes, so absolutely. every single thing here on renewable energy screams that we should throw our entire weight behind this and actually have a policy, not for 10 years, not for 20 years, but for 100 years. I mean, as I said in the podcast, John, we missed the Industrial Revolution. We actually missed it because we didn't have any energy, right? And the parts of the world that had coal, which is the north of England, the Midlands of England, the Ruhr Valley, all those people, because of the energy they had, we're able to build around this industries of steel and mechanical engineering and train building because they had the foundational source. Here we have the foundational source off the Atlantic coast, which is clean and renewable. And rather than put our entire efforts behind that, we're worried about nimbyism and whether yes. people like little the picture of little turbines. 
So I think it's important to just see this in the totality. This is entirely transformative. It's also what I would say, John, I'll conclude this, is just, just the good fortune of geography, right? That we happen to have, for the first time ever, a geological or geographical perfect storm of location, of need, and of energy source. And it would be an appalling thing, an appalling thing, and an appalling indictment of the vision of this country if we were to not only ignore this, but even worse, if we were to vote for people and elect people whose entire objective is to stall this. Before I let you go, I'm just going to give you a quick update. The Doggy Book Festival, it's the 18th of June weekend. We have an extraordinary array of economics, science, politics, culture, the whole shebang. We have a hundred speakers coming from five continents covering all sorts of issues. We kick off Balloons Day the 16th with all sorts of Joyce and carry on. It's the hundredth anniversary of the publication of Ulysses. So we're going large on Joyce. John and I are kicking it off. We're going to even talk a bit of Joyce. Joyce and mm-hmm. all that malarkey. It'd be very eucaterical. Very eucaterical. All the way to the 19th of June, Sunny Dawkey. Check it out. Dawkeybookfestival.org. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 